Digital Gonzo, episode 135, recorded Wednesday the 12th of May 2013, Watchmen. Just a matter of time, I suppose. suggest we do about it retribution we can save this world why would i save the world i no longer have any stake in do it for me Welcome to another show presented in the new format, allowing for deep focus audio article material. This week, by popular demand, I'm allowing more time for roundtable debate. And this time we're looking at the 2009 cinematic adaptation of the most celebrated, respected, and untouchable of sacred cows amongst comic book fans. Here at Gonzo, we like to take conventions like this and unceremoniously toss them out the window. I don't care if this is the only graphic novel to turn up on the Time Magazine 2005 all-time greatest novels list. But there's a begrudging statistic that says more about the emaciated gatekeepers of the world of classical literature than it does about comics. However, I will not dispute for even half a second its impact. In the 20th century, there were three major moments for superhero comic books. The late 30s for the debuts of Superman and Batman, the early 60s for the first appearances of Spider-Man and the X-Men, and the mid-80s for The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. After this proof of concept that comics could not only be written for adults, but in fact could reach potential heights that outstripped other media, the gloves were off, and whole generations began growing up seeing their heroes in a different light, surrounded by shadows.
the long and winding road to us watching Watchmen. From the moment it was launched as a book some 27 years ago, Watchmen was in development hell for a movie adaptation. Joel Silver and Lawrence Gordon acquired the license for Fox, but Alan Moore refused to write a screenplay. Fox enlisted Sam Hamm, comic book fan, who we mentioned on the Batman shows, to write a screenplay instead. He rewrote the ending and brought in a time paradox and assassination scenario. Fox sold the rights to Warner Brothers in 1991, who gave it to Terry Gilliam. Charles McEwen rewrote the Hammy script. Gilliam and Silver were only able to raise 25 million of the required 100. Gilliam left, declaring the project unfilmable. Ten years later, in October 2001, not coincidentally a month after 9-11, Lawrence Gordon and Lloyd Levin hired X-Men movie scribe and solid snake voice David Hayter to write a new screenplay for Universal. This version brought the film forward to contemporary times and became about the war on terror. Hayter and the producers left Universal due to creative differences and went to Revolution, it fell apart and the license went to Paramount. Paramount wanted Darren Aronofsky, same as Warner wanted him for Batman Year One and Fox later wanted him for The Wolverine. All three studios later decided against Aronofsky. Darren left, Paul Greengrass entered and the project was turned over to Warner Brothers. Impressed with his work on 300, Warner concluded that Zack Snyder knew how to bring graphic novels to the screen. Alex Che rewrote using his favourite elements of Hater's script but now sticking far closer to the original text, setting it in its original alternate 1985. Dave Gibbons became an advisor on Zack Snyder's film, but Alan Moore refused to have his name attached to any film adaptation of his work. Moore has stated he has no interest in seeing Snyder's adaptation. He told Entertainment Weekly in 2008, There are things that we did with Watchmen that could only work in a comic, and were indeed designed to show off things that other media can't. While Moore believes that David Hayter's screenplay was... As close as I can imagine anyone getting to watch Ren. He asserts he did not intend to see the film if it were made. It was one of the most expensive R-rated movies ever, costing $135 million and making only $185 million back, which, as we all know, equates to a flop in Hollywood. It may be the last of its kind for a very long while, though clearly Christopher Nolan has proved that you can more than exceed this level of intelligence and introspection in a PG-13 vigilante movie so the truly important aspect will absolutely continue Tales of the Black Freighter by Lauren Grieve read by Sharon Shaw Tales of the Black Freighter is originally a pirate themed comic book in the universe of the Watchmen graphic novel being read by a young man visiting a newsstand. Small snippets of the Black Freighter story are delivered through the graphic novel, and it was originally planned to be included in the movie in much the same way, delivered in pieces over the course of the film's runtime. It was also supposed to be live action, but ultimately became an animated feature due to budget constraints. Gerard Butler, who played King Leonidas in Snyder's previous film 300, was promised a role in Watchmen but failed to be cast as anyone. Snyder had Butler provide the lines for the young Mariner to still include him in the movie. Jared Harris voiced Ridley, the voice of the Mariner's fallen comrade that he begins hearing over the course of the journey. Unfortunately, the animation was cut from the theatrical release to shorten the movie some, and was released straight to DVD with the faux documentary Under the Hood. Later, the Ultimate Edition DVD of Watchmen included the entirety of Tales of the Black Freighter, as was originally intended. <laughs> 
The general story is as follows. The Black Freighter, a cursed and imposing pirate vessel, destroys a ship, leaving one survivor. The young mariner manages to get to a small island only to watch the Black Freighter sail off in the direction of Davidstown, the young mariner's home where his wife and child await. Deciding that he must reach Davidstown to warn the inhabitants and hopefully save his family, the man builds a raft out of bits of his destroyed ship and the bodies of his fallen comrades. He sails out for several days, becoming more and more obsessed with saving his village with each passing day. This obsession drives him to madness, as is shown by his increasingly erratic actions through the rest of the journey. He manages to reach the shore of Davidstown in the dead of night, but assumes the town has already been taken since the Black Freighter is sitting near the harbour. The young mariner then sneaks into the town, killing several people along the way in fear that they are in league with the pirates. Eventually he makes it to his home and nearly kills his wife in his madness. The townsfolk rise up and chase him from Davidstown back to the water's edge. The man, confused and quite insane, stares out at the black freighter and realises that it didn't arrive there to attack the town, but instead was there to claim him as its newest crewman. The comic ends with the man swimming out to the black pirate ship and being drawn up to the jubilant cries of the murderous crew. The following is an excerpt from Digital Cowboys episode 96, recorded 14th of March 2009. This is a review of the film by my then co-host, Tony Atkins. Okay, well I'm coming in obviously completely cold, um, apart from seeing the trailers. In fact, I had more interaction with the computer, you know, the arcade game before I actually went yeah. to see the film. So I'm completely going stomach cold. And, and from that sense, you know, it's a perfectly enjoyable film. Um, I, I, do feel it has flaws. Um, it, it's this gets out of the way. It's two and three quarters of hours long. It's so long. That's a long film nowadays. When films seem to be getting shorter, this one seems to be going against the grain and being longer. But what I can say about that, it's two and three quarters of hours long, but it feels like it should be six. Um, there's so much stuff that you can see it's trying to fit into the story, mm. but there's so little stuff going on as well that really makes sense it's you can see it's a massive opera of stuff but they're having to cut it around to get it into this film structure because it's it, it like you say it, it is basically panels now what um comic book panels can do they can go to a to c and not really have to fill in b because people just you know fill in the blanks amongst themselves and go uh-huh, okay, good point. that guy um where films as a as a technology isn't that it has to go from a to b to c because if you just jump between stuff it gets really really confusing for your average audience so i just kind of feel like because it's having to do that it drops certain stuff out i mean i I haven't read it so i don't know if it has dropped stuff out but it feels like it's a bigger opera and it almost feels like it needs to be like a a mini tv series it feels like it needs to be six episodes each one an hour long that deals with a certain section of this this crime fighting unit that that, was on the cards but it wouldn't have had the budget yeah and and i agree you know this that wouldn't have happened because you know this has massive production values and to get it out the way the audience it's almost like kill zone in that respect it looks fantastic i mean it's very very well put together visually but Kind of like Killzone, it, it seems to be, you know, there was a little something lacking in the actual story itself. Although it's a long story, I kind of, I, I never found myself getting, you know, really that invested in any of these characters. I mean, one in particular, who's the guy that looks like Batman? Night Owl. Night Owl. Didn't really understand his story at all. <laughs> I was like, I was, by the end of it, I was like, 
Okay, so we're just here. They were flaws of the book. I mean, Alan Moore isn't actually on board to actually even tell them what they should and shouldn't do with his material. That they, you know, a bit like Lord of the Rings, they know what to overwrite and what, you know, what to improvise and add and what not to put in there and what. That's fine, but it doesn't necessarily make for a great film. Um, I, I, like I say, I did enjoy it, but I I did feel like because it has like those two time zones of the, the generation after the generation, and for me that stuff didn't. Overly work. It means um, sort of flashes back to the sixties and uh, yeah, you, you obviously you got that like girl, the woman with the mother. Um, so, I don't know, the silk Spectre and then her mother, the first Silk Spectre. A lot of that stuff, and it just really didn't seem to work. I mean, I, I did like uh, Rorschach. I thought he was fantastic. And they seemed to spend a lot of time working with his backstory, and that I really did appreciate. But this is also one of the you know the film that features one of the worst sex scenes I've ever seen. Oh Christ, that was awful. I was cringing. I do like the fact that the film is dark, and I do like the fact that it portrays these superheroes as completely flawed, you know, people that started out as something, you know, they, they wanted to save the world, and ultimately they are human beings, and they're completely flawed. Um, you know, look at the the comedian, for instance, you know, he's a prime example of that. And I do really appreciate it for all that stuff. I just, I just feel like there's a lot of flash and not enough substance, but the substance was there given a slightly better... Um, handle of the material and I think Zack Snyder's done the best he can it almost feels like a fanboy's uh, adaptation and I also really really like Billy Crudup as uh, Dr. Manhattan even though he yes. was incredibly aloof the whole time you you felt Billy Crudup through the performance even though he was just this glowing dude uh, you know what there's a thing that people keep mentioning about that oh, character whatever. No, don't no, even bother don't, not even going to mention it okay deal with it grow the fuck up everyone observe the digital dong. Check it That's out. That's right, I'm male. Your dongs are small and useless. I really recommend this film, but I will put the caveat that it is not for everyone. I keep saying caveat too much. I will not use that I, word next year, next week. I will really recommend this film as well. But the strange thing is, I just find myself wanting to see more of it. You know, this elusive director's cut that's meant to be coming out, I believe, are three and a half hours long. I'm really eager to see it. I want to know more. I actually want to borrow the comic because I want to know more about these characters. I just felt like the direction in itself was all about the show and there wasn't enough substance that, you know, having seen interviews with Alan Moore, he seems to be just an amazingly intense guy and that he would, would, would have written stuff better than what necessary some of the performance would allow for it to be on the screen. If I was to give it a, a score, I still would give it a 4 out of 5, because I did actually really enjoy it. I wanted more of it. It's just I, a lot of my criticisms, I think it, it, there's a better story to be told, but it ultimately isn't what was delivered in the final product here. And by the sounds of it, the, the graphic novel itself deserves somewhat of a better show. I have nothing against Zack Snyder, because I really like 300. Um, and I'm, he's a really, really good director. I just, you know, I think ultimately what happened here, the story itself should be more visually entertaining the actual visuals on screen and it was the other way around he went with that direction you people can watch while i'm scrubbing these floors and i'm scrubbing the floors while you're gawking maybe once you tip me and it makes you feel swell in this crummy southern town in this crummy old hotel but you'll never guess to who you're talking you couldn't ever guess to who you're talking. Then one night, there's a scream in the night, and you wonder, who could that have been? 
And you see me kind of grinning while I'm scrubbing. And you say, what she got to grin? I'll tell you, there's a ship, the black freighter, with a skull on its masthead will be coming in. This story within the story is intended to provide a commentary on the larger narrative, particularly in regards to Ozymandias' final plan to stop the war. Both stories involve a well-meaning man performing odious acts involving the dead bodies of his friends for what he considers the greater good, but in the end becoming a terrible murderer. Additionally, the juxtaposition of such a bleak and dark story serves to underline the more horrifying aspects of the greater narrative, providing the reader or viewer with a general feeling of unease. With me now for the roundtable section of the show, I have Sharon Shaw of Do Try This at Home and Joshua Garrity of Cane and Rinse. Good evening. Thank you for having me. I have various questions on themes and story here, followed by character studies for us to get our teeth into. First one, what picture is painted in your minds by the alternate history displayed so effectively in the intro sequence? Come gather round, people, wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone Or the times they are Writers and critics who privatize with your pen And keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling who that it's naming Was the loser now will be later to win For the times they are a-changing Senators, congressmen, please heed the call Don't stand in the doorway, don't lock up the hall For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled The battle outside raging Will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls For the times they are a-changing Mothers and fathers throughout the land And don't criticize what you can't understand Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command Your old road is rapidly aging Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand For the times they are a-changing
withdrawn, the curse it is cast. The slow one now will later be fast as the present now will later be past. The order is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last. For the times they are changing. It's certainly a very dystopian one. Elaborate. Well, they. The news stories and um, the um, the little snippets of the the world that it's painting, it doesn't shy away from what's behind the camera flashes and what's behind the headlines, and that you know there's certain things are being sold to the public in a particular way, but then they allow you to just drift to the right and see what was actually going on behind that. They they do a good job of um, showing you like the shallow kind of surface level uh, side of culture as well, like all the the publicity around the superheroes and them being like portrayed as these like you know rock stars, these like really iconic people, and it's all just on the surface. And then in the next frame after they've done something like that, they'll show you the darker side. So it's this constant flipping between these two uh, sides of the coin. Most people tend to agree that the actual intro sequence uh, is is one of the absolute highlights of the film. Uh, it's this and the Manhattan sequence that people tend to approve of the most. Do you remember in uh, the uh, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, uh, he's got that opening montage set to um, Johnny Cash's uh, When the Man Comes Around? Yeah. It, it's, yes. He's really good at setting the scene in montage. He, he's he's excellent at doing that with trailers as well because I, I don't know if you've seen the teaser trailer for Love the it. Watchmen movie, yeah. movie recently it's a superb trailer yeah. um, the man is talented at making montages um, I, I just I worry about certain other aspects of his uh, skill but yeah that's he's got that down at least yeah does uh, he have a background in music videos by any chance? Yes. Is he used to working in four-minute sections when working on short segments? Specifically set to music. It's yeah. Very powerful yeah. Stuff. I mean, the the use of the the Bob Dylan music for this one. Um, I mean, one one of the things that I really really admire about the uh, the intro sequence is the way. It, you can see the passage of time in it. You can see um, the, the progress of how one thing leads to the next, to the next, to the next. And if you're looking at it as uh, a divergent parallel world where certain things happened the same as in our world, he manages to lead you from the point at which it diverged right the way up to present day as the film starts um, without... You know, there's barely a wasted shot or a wasted frame. Mm. Um, everything contributes to this, this sense of it being real and, and being fully multidimensional. I think it also does an excellent job of uh, putting information into the film that is kind of just spread out around, uh, amongst the many pages of the graphic novel. Yeah. Uh, just put them in one section so it pleases the fans. The fans know there's more information to, the, to these scenes than um, that's being demonstrated, but it's not necessary for the story the film's take, um, telling. But it's 
those moments that they do show um, do give the people who aren't familiar with Watchmen an idea of the setting and the tone and stuff like that. It's it, it's yeah, it's one of the best parts of the film. I just read the book when I uh, saw the film, and and that made the whole thing so much clearer to me. And as as, as you said, it's not it's not actually in the book, not as written. Yeah, see, was drawn. That I think though is an important thing to bear in mind in the jump from uh, the the mediums from going from graphic novel to film. There's significant differences in the way that people will inevitably perceive them because and this is something that I have issue with the way Snyder handles certain other elements of the film but you are controlled by what the director wants you to see. With the graphic novel, you can go back over those panels. When you think you've seen a a small detail, you can go back and study it at your own pace. You can pick up all that information at your leisure. You can't do that with a film unless you want to sit there with your finger on the rewind button. Mm. So to have all of that stuff together and in a place where it can be used as shorthand to give people an idea of what world they're going to find themselves in for the next however many minutes, depending on what version you're watching. I think it's it's quite key to create that world rather than just throwing people in at the deep end and saying, tell you what, here's all the information, you pick it out, because you can't do that with a film. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what are the benefits and drawbacks of this film being a largely shot-for-shot, word-for-word adaptation of the book? Nobody mentions in all of the documentary stuff that they're doing what Sin City did before. And it went Sin City, then 300, then this. It's it's a rare and unusual way of using the original comic as storyboards. So what are the benefits and drawbacks? I think a drawback is that what works in one medium simply doesn't work in another, I think. Like, you can, I think you can afford to have really long, drawn-out uh, monologues in a novel or a graphic novel because... It's that the nature of the medium is that it's a slower paced experience. And plus, uh, Watchmen is very episodic in nature as well. The chapters are very distinct and each one's like, almost like an episode of a TV show. Yeah. So you can afford to have these like really long sections of uh, dialogue and monologuing. Uh, in a film, it doesn't work. You need to have quite snappy dialogue. You need to keep the pace up. And I think certain stuff like uh like Rorschach's monologue at the beginning it I, I don't think it works as well as a film it it works when you're flipping through the pages and you're seeing like Rorschach uh, investigate the crime scene and you it's almost like you're getting inside the mind of this guy you're watching explore but in the film it's kind of unnecessary because you can get inside the mind of an actor just by watching them if you understand what i'm saying mm. it's it it feels a bit unnecessary Rorschach's Journal, October 12th, 1985. Dog carcass in alley this morning. Dire tread on burst stomach. This city's afraid of me. I've seen its true face. The streets are extended gutters, and the gutters are full of blood. And when the drains finally scab over, all the vermin will drown. The accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up around their waists. And all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, Save us. And I'll whisper, No. Now the whole world stands on the brink, staring down into bloody hell. All those liberals, 
intellectuals and smooth talkers. And all of a sudden, nobody can think of anything to say. Beneath me, this awful city, it screams like an abattoir full of retarded children. And the night reeks of fornication and bad consciences. In a way, now that it's been done this faithfully, at some point in the future, they're going to give it another go. And it might be then time to reinterpret it, maybe make it more relevant, maybe change other aspects of it. But now that they've done it as, as close as they possibly can, you could get closer for that go for the motion comic, which, by the way, having watched, they really need to reorchestrate that thing because one male narrator does not work by I, I today's just, standards. It's, it's, just, it's very lazy. I just feel sorry for that actor because I, I think he does a fairly decent job with some of the characters. Yeah. But you're 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 giving him an, an impossible task, having him voice every single character in the book. That's not. I don't care how talented you are, you can't do that. But yeah, it's it's all right. Miss Uspetchik, good to see you. Uspetchik, what's that? Grandmother's name? Didn't like Jupiter, huh? Didn't take your old man's name either. What's my name to you? Nothing. You know, you're a pretty girl. I just gotta look at you. I see your mom. <laughs> you know, your mother, she was a peach. Is that what you told her before you tried to rape her? Before you hit her? Before you kicked her? That isn't the way you treat peaches? Kid, are you sure you want to take this all the way? Damn straight I do. I mean, what kind of man are you? You have to take some woman? You have to force her into having sex against her will? Only once. Only once. As if, you know, it was better than doing it twice or 50 times. And his scar. It always looked like he was sneering. Had seven scotches inside me, one in my hand, and I let him have it. And then you came, and you were angry, and you took me home. It was the first time you ever teleported me anywhere. First time I threw up. But I mean, why bother telling you all this? It just confirms things, right? All these wretched, grubby little human encounters. Better off without them. None of it ever meant a damn thing anyway. I mean, these, my mother's clippings, her whole life, right there. What's it mean? In your terms, next to a, a neutrino, next to something you can't even see, for Christ's sake, it means nothing. Lori, don't Lori me. It's pointless debating when you obviously don't see anything terribly miraculous in life. Maybe quantum physics doesn't allow miracles. No, thermodynamic miracles are... Oh, for God's sake, John. Just land this thing. Now. As you wish. You can take me back to Earth to fry with Dan and my mom and all us other worthless humans. The conversation's over. But either way, the motion comic is as complete as you could possibly want. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's everything. And it takes five hours, which tells me that played out exactly as the uh, book was written, the theatrical cut would have been a hell of a lot longer. Even the ultimate cut's only three and a half hours long. So there is, in terms of capturing what the book is and where it stood in time. It actually reminds me very much of um, the recent animated version of The Dark Knight Returns as well. Yeah, They didn't change anything there, and I like them doing that. It translates into a new medium without having to twist it too much to suit that medium. Well, animation and comic books are already so close in terms yeah, of yeah. like the techniques they use. And, and I kind of hope that Warner Brothers... 
uh, kind of give Watchmen the same treatment at some point. Give it a full just, animated version. Yeah. yeah, just just because I think the fans would appreciate that. It, yeah. it's, it wouldn't be for... It, it definitely wouldn't sell to the mainstream, but, you know, just like the Dark Knight... Uh, Dark Knight Returns. I almost said Rises. Jesus. It's uh, easy to confuse the two. Um, <laughs> the Rises is based in part on Returns. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, yeah, it, it's just, you know, something to please us yeah. as hardcore fans. It would have to be a mini-series, though, because otherwise, as we've already established, it's going to be five and a half hours long. I, I think you could cut... Like, you don't... Like, I know... Ah, but if you cut it, it, then it's not accurate. You don't need the Black Freighter. Well, just like, reincorporate the existing Black Freighter animation. Just, I, I know fans are really protective of that sequence uh, in the comic book, but it's not. It's only there to mirror the events of the book. It's not. It, there's no necessary information in there. It, you can just leave it. it it's not necessary. I, I, I never understood why fans were so clamoring for the ultimate cut for, of Watchmen as well. It's like we need. It needs to happen. No, you don't need. Just. It's silly. It's like £116 now. They only did a very limited run. Oh, well. Anyway. Anyway. I think the problem is that it ends up feeling, because it's so fateful, it feels like a fan project rather than the director's own vision. I think the reason why The Dark Knight is such a great film is because Christopher Nolan took ownership over that material, whereas uh, Zack Snyder does feel like he's just imitating somebody else's work at points. Yeah. You're also bound by certain constraints of the existing text. Ozymandias's costume that Snyder went out of his way to ape the Batman costumes of the nineties and made it look a bit silly. Yeah. But the original costume as drawn is ridiculous. Yeah. And, and yeah, actually the costume is going to be a huge aspect of this because, uh, remember in 1986 costumes really were that stupid and it was all just what looked flashy back in the day. Yeah. That, that, that was the kind of thinking that allowed the Disco Dazzler to be a character. What's the fashion? Yeah. How is music used as a world-building tool? The film's a period piece, and I think the music does an excellent job of kind of putting you in that point of time. There's lots of uh, excellent selections from that uh, uh, time period. Well, not necessarily the 80s, but like... Uh, there are you know, different selections from all the different points in time that Watchmen covers, uh, as there are the many flashbacks. I also think a lot of the songs kind of talk about the, the subject matter um, that's going on in the film. Uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix uh, doing All Along the Watchtower is an obvious one. It's commenting on the the whole... Um, who's watching the Watchmen, which is a major theme of the uh, the comic book. Yeah, it's. I, I think it's one of the better uh, things about the film. Uh, a lot of those songs are actually mentioned in the graphic novel uh, yeah. uh, in between chapters. Just as a piece of attention to detail, I thought it was really well put together. Using music uh, to kind of underline the points that you're making in in a film gives it that multi-dimensionality that that a, a novel doesn't have you can put a quote in a book but you can actually have the song playing over the background of of the images that you're showing with a film and it really helps to to bring that whole scene alive but one of the things about using 
fantasy or, or sci-fi fantasy as a, a way of examining the, the themes and, and mores of your own world is that you need something to be able to connect what you see every day with that world. You know, it's something that's completely alien to the way that you see things isn't necessarily going to get those points across. Although, obviously, the whole point of using fantasy to do it is that it, it does give it a slight sense of detachment by changing things. But I think you do still need something to draw people in. And music is a great way of evoking emotional responses to things and, and one other piece of media that that really did this well i thought was uh, bioshock infinite where they use the songs from our world mm. but changed slightly and and um you know altered to fit with that world but there's enough recognition there for us to see the links where that world has touched ours and therefore to be able to project what we want to see into that world. And I think with Watchmen, they do, they have the same effect by using songs which are very familiar to us in certain contexts. Um, like Josh said, you've got All Along the Watchtower, which has very obvious thematic connotations for the story anyway, um, but also the use of um, what was in the 60s and 70s very popular protest music to underline images of people protesting the the capes and the the vigilantes there's a point in i think it's in the ultimate cut where adrian's walking through the lobby of his building and showing the the business suits around and the tinkly elevator music that you can just hear in the background is everybody wants to rule the world nice and it's it's kind of it's got that you know, if you recognise it, it's the there. The thematic connection is extremely obvious because um, you know that that kind of ruling the world so that he can save it is is clearly what he's aiming towards, and he's even talking about Alexander the Great at the same time. Just on a side note, the beginning is the end is the beginning. The uh, uh, Smashing Pumpkins piece of music used in the uh, tr- teaser trailer is actually a, a slowed down B side version of the one that was in. Batman and Robin. Now there is polishing a turd. <laughs> I I will say one thing. As much as you know, I have problems with this film. Watchmen's a lot better than Batman. And Robin. <laughs> so it's a lot better than. So a lot there of are diseases that are better frankly. than Batman and Robin. Well, true, true enough. <laughs> oh, you got scabies. Still, could be worse. Could be Batman and Robin. <laughs>
Four Points on Watchmen by David Hartrick, read by Matt Ramsey. When Alex asked me what I thought of the film Watchmen, Four Points immediately sprang to mind. Rather than trying to frame this with a contrived narrative it doesn't need, the easiest thing to do is to just take them on a one-by-one basis. Point number one, stylistically and tonally, the film captures the book perfectly. Panels are ripped from the page exactly, design work, particularly involving Night Owl and his world, is copied to the smallest detail, and the palette changes as per the book, and in particular Dave Gibbons' art dictates. This is a superbly rendered New York City, capturing the 1985 of the book and making it work for the screen. No easy task when you consider how other comic book worlds have been captured. I'm looking at you, Joel Schumacher. Stay away from Gotham, you're no longer welcome there. Point number two. The changed ending of the film works so much better for both today's audience and a film adaptation. If they had taken the literal ending of the book, it would have been just awful. In managing to make such a significant change, but keep the theme so well it never felt clumsy or tacked on, they crafted a small miracle. Point number three. Each character is given the time to breathe that people said a film wouldn't allow. Rorschach is given the space to explain his lack of compromise without it feeling clumsy, Ozymandias' drastic step is completely in line with the man we meet on screen, and Dr. Manhattan's backstory and shifting philosophy is explored enough so we understand why he's so cold. Watchmen is a book about people's ideologies and how the common good can mean vastly different things to each individual. The film compromises nothing in keeping this story as its goal. Point number four. Nothing is unfilmable as Watchmen once was thought. Peter Jackson proved this with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, that it's 60% talent and 40% having the bravery to tackle it head-on. Respect the material and still bring something of yourself to it. Watchmen is not a perfect film, but you have to commend Snyder's bravery, even if his talent hasn't yet quite caught up. So after the analysis, a personal opinion. Let me explain how I feel about the book before the film. It would be number one on my list of the most important comics of all time. It broke barriers in terms of the way in which comic book storytelling was perceived and proved to the publishers themselves that this level of nuance and layered storytelling was possible. It inspired a wave of writers and artists and it quite rightly deserves to be held up as a true original of the genre. So number one in my most important list, where is it in my list of personal favourites? Well, I've read it a few times now and it's certainly not top ten. 
definitely not top 25 and probably not even top 50. If Neil ever takes me to that island on Desert Island Gonzo, Watchmen wouldn't even be a consideration. I don't hate it and I can see the craft and immense talent of Moore in every panel, but personally I find it bloated and at times egotistical. It knows it's clever and it never lets you forget that. This isn't a bad thing, and I certainly don't favour dumbed-down comics in any way, but it's relentless, and page after page it wears me down. So taking that into consideration, how did I feel about the film? Well, I was only ever going to like it as much as I enjoyed the book, and that's testament to how well it captures the source text, I guess. If Alan Moore wasn't so willfully obsessed with the notion of ownership, he might find much to admire himself. Dave Gibbons certainly did, and is on record as being thrilled with the adaptation and loving everything about it. To the slavish fan of the book, the ending will grate, but the feel should still impress. To the admirer for various reasons such as myself, I enjoyed it as much as you can enjoy a closely adapted film of a book you've never fallen completely in love with. To the newcomer to the story, as as my wife was, there was much to love without the baggage of reputation or previous experience. In conclusion, I can only say Snyder delivered a film that is every bit as good as it could be in terms of adaptation, and at the limits of his ability at that stage in his career. Who watches The Watchmen? Everybody should. Enjoy it or not, it's a book you should read and a film you should see. Who enjoys The Watchmen? It's a very different and a very individual question. Some kind of way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessman there Drink my wine Come and dig my earth Are the Cold War themes still relevant today? By that I mean, how have they been built on, and what are the benefits and drawbacks of not updating this scenario as written? I think they're still relevant today, but we have, they're slightly, our problems today are slightly different. Uh, Nuclear war is not so much of a looming threat, but terrorism is. And I think if you were to update Watchmen to modern day, Mm. that would be your theme. It would be more about, like, uh, just terrorist cells and stuff like that. Um, I I think the themes, though, the ideas that that they're going for that are drawn out of the Cold War are absolutely still relevant. Like, the idea of humanity just constantly... Our inability to work together for the common good because of petty grievances and stuff like that. Um, well, thank God we don't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, we, <laughs> we're just that's still that's yeah, absolutely. It's still absolutely relevant to today. It may be written about the Cold War, but it is analogous with ongoing situations. But- for that reason, though, I think it's important that they didn't try to update it yeah. and seeing it as a period piece. 
there are things that, yes, the themes are consistent because the themes will always be consistent because human interaction and specifically human aggressive interaction will always be the same. The technology will change, but the, the act of it and the inspiration of it will always be the same and will always be there. But I mean, there's little threads that you can pick up on that, that may have been the case in 1985, but are still now. The fact that Afghanistan is a, a significant concern, yeah. obviously that still applies now. But there are some elements to it that I think hook on specific points in our history that you'd find it difficult to have a parallel to. The, the fact that Nixon gets his you know, he twists the constitution so that he can get re-elected and ends up having four terms five in office. Five terms. Five, oh, Lord, five terms in office. Um, is there another president that's so loathed and resented and was obviously so at the time that that I can think of one. <laughs> Actually, as I was saying the words, I was thinking... Uh, he wasn't loved by everyone. A lot of people loved him. that kind of melds in with the terrorism thing. However, there is an issue that I've got with um, uh, the the threat of the Cold War is different from the threat, the modern threat of terrorism, because yeah. the, the point of the Cold War was they needed effectively God, John, to be able to counter that, to be able to say, we now have something which is so huge, it will outweigh the fact that you have nuclear bombs too. Now, if you look at the, the modern warfare that we are being obliged to engage in where we are, and that's not a political comment, but just that the fact of how war seems to work these days, and that it tends to be more small cells here, there and everywhere. It's not country versus country anymore. It's little knots of people doing specific things. And quite frankly, a team of vigilantes would actually probably be pretty effective against that. But the whole point of what Laurie and Dan go out and do is that in the face of what John is up against, what they're doing is utterly futile. And you wouldn't necessarily have that in the same way. You could probably find a way of doing it, but I don't think they would get the the sheer hugeness of atomic threat and, you know, Russian Cold War threat. I, I just I don't think that exists these days. They'd have to retcon the history and bump it forwards by 30 years as well. Yeah. The, and uh, why do you need to? Just make it a period piece. It still works. Yeah. It, this just comes down to the idea of making something relevant today. You, you do precisely that. But today will immediately become yesterday, tomorrow. Yeah. So if you make it relevant to where we were already now, what, 20 years ago? 30 years ago? Yeah. That well, will I, always be that time. I think also with making it a period piece, but, you know, having it made now, um, it allows you to comment on modern events, but have some kind of distance from them. Subtext. So it doesn't age. Yeah. So it, it um, you can still comment on that stuff, but it, it, it's not as blatant and it's not this fixed point in time where it's only relevant to now. It can just, it can constantly be reused going forward. So, yeah. There were two subtle differences between the uh, comic and the film that I noticed today. Uh, one was that the film has more focus on Nixon and the debate in the war room. There's a lot more of that ongoing throughout the film, and, and you get uh, more of a flavor of the fear that the government were going through uh, regarding Manhattan. 
which I, you know, hugely appreciated and helps to build and flesh out the world in, in, in that respect. There was a lot more TV debate going back and forth. I would say one thing though, his makeup is the worst <laughs> facial makeup I've seen. The nose. Yeah. I mean, why not just get Frank Langella? Yeah. Who has played Nixon in Frost Nixon just to do the same role again? Yeah. yeah I, I was reminded of every time I see him of, uh, either a tricky deck fun belt from Futurama, the Nixon's head in a jar. But Nixon's the worst president in history and alternate history. The rest of you aren't voting for him, are you? Sure we are. He may not be perfect, but do we really want some unknown new guy? I'll stick with the evil maniac I know, thank you. Give me my body back, you two-bit thief! Now look here, you drugged-out communist. I paid for this body, and I'd no sooner return it than I would my little cocker spaniel dog, Checkers. Ah! Shut up, damn it! Or Point Break. (laughs) (laughs) The dead president. I am not a crook. And the other thing was that when when Comedian sets fire to that map of America in the uh, the meeting of the crime fighters in the book or the watchmen in the film, this is the second uh, group of superheroes, superheroes, vigilantes, there were four labels on it indicating things that uh, in, in the comic Captain Metropolis was suggesting they tackle. In order of relevance for vigilantes to tackle them, drugs... I could see how maybe vigilante action might help there. Student riots. Hmm? Okay. Black unrest. Okay, that is now no longer your territory. And promiscuity. What the actual fuck are they suggesting that they do about promiscuity? It's actually suggested that um, some of the old... Because... is it Metropolis? Sorry, the guy. Captain Metropolis. The, He's the one trying to make Captain a comeback. Metropolis. It's suggested that his politics are really kind out of, of step. out of step. Um, anyone who's heard interviews with Alan Moore knows that he's kind of a hardcore anarchist. So a lot of these um, characters are actually people he'd hate. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting watching him get into the the shoes of people that he in real life he despise um which which is something that i feel is slightly missing from the film they kind of try and make everyone a little bit less horrible um they they (laughs) they, cool yeah they straight up remove captain metropolis from the film so yeah that that says it all really like he's not a likable character at all if you read up on the uh on his backstory he's a horrible human being I do like the fact that uh, Dollar Bill is still there with his cape stuck in the door, um, just, Im- just completely backing up Edna Mode in uh, The Incredibles. Yeah. No capes. Okay. Diner guy. Oh, he had a great look. Oh, the cape and the boots. No capes. They are totally the opposite of useful for a vigilante. The only reason Batman is allowed one <laughs> is because it's actually made of that... Um, the, the memory fabric, which allows him to glide with it. If it doesn't actually have a straight-out function, no caps. Meta Man, Express Elevator, Diner Guy, Snag on Takeoff, Splashdown, Sucked into a Vortex, no caps. Also, he uses it to make himself seem bigger and more threatening, which is a key part of his persona. One would yeah. imagine Night Owl 2 does that as well. But it doesn't actually seem to... I mean, any prisoner could have just stepped on that cape at any point, and he yeah. would have gone arse about tit. 
Then one night, there's a scream in the night, and you say, who's that kicking up a row? And you see me kind of staring out the window, and you say, what's she got to stare at now? I'll tell you, there's a ship, the black freighter turns around in the harbor, shooting guns from her bow. Now the question that remains is, does it work for this movie and is the movie made stronger by its inclusion? It is certainly true that the movie is made longer by its inclusion since the animation and necessary bookend scenes add 29 more minutes to a movie that is already three hours long. First of all, let us consider the animation by itself and not how it was included in the greater narrative. The style that it is rendered in matches the panels in the original graphic novel quite well, while simultaneously reminding me of the old animated Eon Flux cartoon. That isn't necessarily a good thing, since I found the Eon Flux animation to be generally bizarre, but it did embody that dark and stylized animation style that seems more akin to moving comic book panels than proper animation. Another nice touch that they added is the constant darkening of the color palette as the animation goes on. Each new section gets visually darker as the story gets figuratively darker, emphasizing the downward spiral of the main protagonist quite well. Not Quite Watchmen by Joshua Garrity. Let me just say right now that I do not hate Zack Snyder's Watchmen. It's alright. In fact, there are moments in the film that I feel capture the essence of the book, but I'll save those for later so this little monologue of mine ends on a more positive note. To understand my primary issue with the film, I first need to explain what the book is to me. Watchmen is many things, but first and foremost, it is a parody and harsh indictment of superheroes. Now, the word parody may seem out of place when describing Watchmen, given how dark, sombre and bleak the overall tone of the book is. But parody doesn't always equal comedy. Sometimes it's a dark reflection of the source material. The characters portrayed in Watchmen aren't the people we fantasize about when we imagine the notion of being a superhero. Most of these individuals are kind of pathetic, some are psychotic, and one, the very idea of, is terrifying. Take a moment to pause this podcast and search for real-life superheroes on Google. What thoughts immediately strike you when you see images and articles of these people? How stupid they look, how desperate for attention they must be, or how they probably need psychological help? The Minutemen are these people, and I'd argue that Night Owl 2 and Silk Spectre 2 are also. These are the kind of people who get riddled with bullets because their cape got caught in a revolving door or might beat a man senseless for what was really only a minor crime. They are silly and kind of sad because that's what they would be if they actually existed. 
We have proof of that with the likes of Phoenix Jones wandering around Seattle. Then there is Rorschach, Alan Moore's commentary on vengeance-fueled superheroes like Batman. Rorschach, in my mind, essentially uses vigilantism as an outlet for his deeply ingrained sociopathic tendencies. Let's not beat around the bush here. Rorschach is a monster. Politically, Rorschach is also about as far away from Alan Moore's own beliefs as you could possibly get. So while the book does sympathise with Rorschach on occasions and certainly doesn't paint him as an entirely black character... It was clear to me that, framed differently, Rorschach could easily be an antagonist in any other story, and that this realisation was probably Alan Moore's intent. So what's my problem with Zack Snyder's Watchmen? The intentionally ridiculous and unsettling nature of these characters, which is so important to the book's commentary on superheroes, has been somewhat sacrificed to make these characters seem cool and sexy. The fight scenes are the first obvious indicator of this. Almost every brawl in the book is quick, dirty and kind of simplistic, whereas in the film they're cartoonish kung fu action sequences with the footage slowing down on key character poses as if Zack were saying, let's take a moment to appreciate how awesome that was. Okay, I'll grant you that Veidt's ability to catch a bullet is ridiculous, but at least in the book the bullet was on its side, embedded in his hand with blood pouring everywhere, his hand seemingly ruined. In the film he manages to stop the bullet facing directly into his hand with little damage done to it. Not to mention his apparent ability to jump eight feet into the air. But if it was just the action sequences that were affected, I wouldn't have been that bothered. It's the changes to characters and their dialogue that really got to me. Now, I'm not one of those psychopaths who believe the film should have been word for word the same as the book. Change is to be expected with any adaptation, and should happen, because what works in one medium may not work in another. But if you are going to adapt something, you should seek to preserve the meaning of the source material. There are several changes made to a few characters' monologues that not only change the meaning of the speech, but the character. Rorschach in the book, as I mentioned, is a monster. In the film, by removing and altering certain scenes, he's cast as a cool anti-hero for the audience to root for. His time in prison suffers the most from this, keeping the Batman-esque voice he should have dropped the moment his mask was removed, and certain parts of his past glossed over in the interview. And the worst thing about the film by far is its portrayal of Vite. Everything about Vite and his choices are deliberately morally ambiguous in the book. From the first time you see him in the movie, he looks like a villain. Every conversation and speech he gives frames him as an antagonist, even before it is revealed that he is the mastermind behind everything. They even added a scene where Night Owl repeatedly punches him and essentially tells Vite that his viewpoint is wrong. Well, great. Here's me thinking the ending was meant to leave us all with a moral question, but Zack is going to go ahead and tell us exactly where our compass should be pointing in this regard. Despite 
all the stuff I just ranted about, there are things I like about the film. One of the major characters I haven't mentioned is Dr. Manhattan, and that's because I think the film actually captures his character perfectly. The scene on Mars where Manhattan reflects on his life and his growing disconnection with humanity is the best scene in the film and feels the most like the source material. I've always felt like the moral behind Manhattan is not that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but that absolute power leads to absolute apathy. And Billy Crudup's weirdly disconnected vocal performance captures that. I also think they handle the flashbacks to superheroes of the 1940s and the comedian really effectively. And the decision to remove the Black Freighter sub-story was a wise one. And to be honest, something I expected to be cut from any film adaptation of Watchmen. What may surprise some is I also don't have a problem with how they changed the ending because they managed to preserve the intent and meaning of that scene, while also removing the possibility of cinema goers simply laughing at the sudden appearance of a giant squid. It also makes Dr. Manhattan partly responsible for what happens, which adds an extra dimension to that character. So on the whole, Watchmen isn't a bad film, it's just a mediocre one. But for me, mediocre isn't good enough for an adaptation of Watchmen. I still remain very open-minded about another attempt to adapt this book, as I think it can be done with the right director and the right script. Warner Brothers, make an animated series of it, please. Thank you. Oh no, Adrian! Looks like the Reds are polluting the city lake! What do we do? We call the Watchmen! Strong together, united forever, they're the best of friends. But when trouble's about, you'd best watch out for the Watchmen. Not only is the leader, and he loves to party down. Rorschach's friends to the animals. Yeah, when he's not clowning around. Why not? Beat up some thugs, say no to drugs, be in bed by ten. But if trouble's about, you'd best watch out for the Watchmen. Spectre's a sensation You should really never miss The comedian's your biggest fan now If I could only get that kiss OZM, you bastards Couple of crimes, so superstars John can give you cancer And I'm turning to a car Strong together, united forever Come and meet your friends Have no fear, time's up, time's here For the Watchmen Matt Ramsey of Do Try This at Home had this to say. I really enjoyed the film, which I saw before I knew anything about the comic, and having subsequently read the comic, I prefer the film. I don't like the ending of the comic, I'm not a huge fan of the art style, and it's too long, and the film covers the key points and is a far more logically consistent ending. The portrayal of costume vigilantes as normal people with unusual jobs is one that I found hugely intriguing. With obvious parallels to other superheroes, the cast being based on Charlton characters, many of which were created to capitalise on the popularity of existing characters, I found the second generation non-powered crime fighters to be a compelling idea, and the relationship between two of them, one of them beautiful, confident but emotionally frail, the other bland, average-looking, somewhat podgy, lacking self-confidence but emotionally healthy, to be very believable. As a film, it's somewhat prone to style over substance, as one would expect from Zack Snyder, 
but it's visually impressive and an excellent period adaptation of a comic that, when written, was contemporary, albeit alternate reality. The comic had more depth when it came to the differences between the timeline and actual history, but the movie got the key elements. The comic, hugely influential but dated. The movie, an excellent update and adaptation of a lengthy, complex work. Observation. It is September 1986. The first issue of Watchmen is released. I am six years old. My chief interests are custard and jumping. It is 1993. Inspired by the Sega Genesis game, I pick up and start reading X-Men number one. This book forms the basis of how I read comics throughout the 90s. I am all about Marvel's mutants. It is March 1998. Inspired by the superstar artists, I buy every book in the cliffhanger imprint from Wildstorm. The comics are concerned with warriors, vampires, steampunks, and busty female secret agents. My emotional maturity does not advance. It is summer 2000. I inherit an old graphic novel of Watchmen. At the same time, I am reading Preacher and Transmetropolitan from Vertigo. My taste now extends to theological westerns with scatological humor and sci-fi political satire with bowel disruptors. The core appeal to me is the characters and dialogue. Watchmen is hard for me to read. It is summer 2001. I am reading Powers by Brian Michael Bendis. It centers on a noirish police force ill-equipped to deal with the crimes surrounding real-life superheroes. The dialogue is razor-sharp, the art stylish, reminiscent of DC animation. The police procedural mystery story is thrilling. The characters likable, though with a hard edge and some often shocking, gruesome, and controversial turns of events. I conclude that Powers, clearly inspired by Moore and Gibbon's book, is a worthy successor. I still have not yet read Watchmen. It is summer 2004. I attempt to read Watchmen a third time in the run-up to The Incredibles, a Disney Pixar film about former superheroes trying to adapt to a daily life in mundane disguise. The movie comes out before I am halfway done. Once again, a more likable, relatable cast of characters and a whip-quick story coupled with beautiful art win me over. I discard Watchmen once again. It is summer 2005. I see Batman Begins at the movie theater. The seriousness with which the character is handled and the length to which director Christopher Nolan goes to portray a realistic vigilante with the intelligence, ideology, overall plan and bankroll to succeed make for a phenomenal film. Once again more than somewhat inspired by Watchmen. It is early 2006. I am reading Rising Stars by J. Michael Straczynski.
It is a three-book story about a world in which 113 specially-powered children were born in a small town right after a ball of light hits the area. The story tracks these children as they grow into adults, many of whom attempt to become superheroes. The effect of time on their lives is one of the themes of the book. It is an investigation into what astonishing power in the hands of a group of individuals will do to the rest of the world and why it is there in the first place. It is emotional and engaging without losing sight of the larger picture. I am reminded of Watchmen, but Alan Moore's story seems small and cold by comparison. It is summer 2008. Will Smith stars in Hancock, a movie about a super being who has lost his taste for humanity and does not know what to do with his abilities. It surprises me how much I engage with this film. Hancock is a drunk, relatable Dr. Manhattan, and still crucially, very human. It is early 2009. In the weeks approaching the release of Zack Snyder's cinematic adaptation, I pull out Watchmen from my shelf. Determined that this time it will not beat me. The book is 23 years old. I am 28. My tastes have advanced considerably since I first encountered it. I sit in my room and refuse to leave until it is done. Four hours later when I am done, I will exhale. Pleased with how intricate and morally ambiguous the book becomes by the end. Appreciative as to the different characters' estimations of what is right and wrong. I observe the film, and it captures most of what made the book thought-provoking, though without the glacial pacing. Film is my medium. Audiovisual animated stimuli will almost always evoke more of a reaction from me. I decided it is the best adaptation the book could hope for. At the time of release. It is June 2013. I searched my timeline for the ideal moment I could have picked up and read Watchmen, getting the absolute most out of the book. My best guess is June 1999, after I have seen The Matrix, my young mind having been blown wide open by that event. I go back and hand myself the book. My 19-year-old counterpart concludes that it is ugly, boring, and somewhat pretentious. I slap me round the head with a wet haddock and return to 2013 to await the wrath of evangelizing comic book fans who posit that this is the Citizen Kane of comic books. This may be empirically true, but Powers, The Incredibles, Batman Begins, Rising Stars, and Hancock are five pieces inspired by Watchmen, which had a considerably more profound effect upon me. Each one, at the correct time.
Right, character profiles. Okay, so the first one, Edward Blake, a.k.a. The Comedian. I think Rorschach actually does the best job of describing him. He's kind of a parody of American culture at that time. Just the kind of bravado, kind of absolutely no concern for, you know, foreign, uh, people he considers to be foreigners. Just revels in violence. He's a despicable human being. And both the book and the film make, you know, they make no bones about it. And I think, um, he's actually one of the better things about the film because I feel like a, a few of the characters in the film are softened. The comedian isn't softened at all. He's just as brutal as he is in the books. Um, the only thing they took off him was his gimp mask. Yeah, which was a good move. I never liked the gimp mask. Neither did um, I. It wouldn't allow you to uh, relate to him during the uh, riot scene either. Yeah. I think he is... I'd, no, I wouldn't say softened, but I think he is humanised a little bit more in the film than he is in the book. Certainly there are moments that he actually does manage to elicit a little bit of empathy, which is difficult for somebody who's been portrayed as carrying out the acts that he has. I never felt at all even a twinge of sympathy for the comedian in the uh, when I read the book, uh, all of those times. But... Um, Jeffrey Dean Morgan's performance he is a very very shades of grey character they're very dark greys but you can see the regret you can see the you can see that he knows he's done the wrong thing time and time again yeah he's often used as a tool to say something about other characters as well the scene with him and Dr. Manhattan is great because he's basically showing uh, John exactly how disconnected from humanity he's become mm. he could have stopped that from happening it would have been easy but in john's mind like he he initially reacts like that but i i kind of get the sense he only reacts like that because he feels like he should mm. like it's I not it's not a genuine reaction because if he really felt something about that situation really felt emotionally invested he could have easily stop the comedian to like as as um uh as edward blake says you could have turned the bullet to uh bullet to snowflakes you could have done a multi multitude of different things but you just stood there and watched yeah although again i think that definitely does say something about blake's character that he would turn that back on john that's that's his response to realizing he's gone too far is to immediately shift the blame to somebody else yes yeah. john could have done any number of those things you could also not have been a complete shit oh absolutely having that despicable character there um is just he's a great 
a great mirror for other characters. Um, the fact that Rorschach respects him Mm. just says so much about Rorschach. Uh, And in many ways, Rorschach's actually worse than the comedian. He certainly has uh, less of a grip on on reality than the comedian does. There's the obvious connection with him and and Laurie, um, and, and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, he, he's, I, he's a very hard character to like, but I think he's important for the story they're telling. Thank you for coming today. I ask you to acquaint yourselves with this map of high crime areas. This is all bullshit. You know, for a guy who calls himself the comedian, I can never tell when you're joking. Watch me. That's the real joke. Didn't work 15 years ago, sure as hell ain't gonna work now just cause you wanna keep playing cowboys and Indians. Maybe we should agree on no drinking at meetings. <laughs> Look, Rorschach and I have made real headway on the gang problem by working together. With a group this size, it seems like a publicity stunt. Not in it for the ink. We can do so much more. We can save this world. <laughs> With the right leadership. Yeah. And that'd be you, right, Ozzy? I mean, you know, you're the smartest man on the planet. Doesn't take a genius to see the world has problems. Yeah, but it takes a room full of morons to think they're small enough for you to handle. You people, you hear Moloch's back in town, you get your panties on a bunch. You think catching him matters? Justice matters. <laughs> Justice. Justice is coming to all of us. No matter what the fuck we do. You know, mankind's been trying to kill each other off since the beginning of time. Now? We finally have the power to finish the job. Ain't nothing gonna matter once those nukes start flying while we'll be dust. That Aussie man is here. Be the smartest man on the cinder. We get to see more of him in the film than we did in the book. The whole scene at the beginning when he's watching TV and then gets the shit kicked out of him. Uh, there are there are frames of that in the comic played out of sequence, but the, that whole section at the beginning, Snyder takes his time. That whole thing could have been done in six seconds, but he sort of builds it up, shows you this guy, shows you kind of how lonely he is. Of course, that's why I felt more sorry for him. He is alone and very, very old. It's a Citizen Kane shot. I can't believe I compared Zack Snyder to fucking Orson Welles. <laughs> Removing the gimp mask allows you to emote with him more during the riot scene, which is a moment of glorious despair for him. Because as far as he's concerned, America has gone to hell in a handcart. But for him, this is as good as it gets. He's needed. His skill set, his attitude is required by somebody. And like you say, he's portrayed in the film as a very, very lonely man. And I think the fact that you see his his flashes of soul, if you like, coming through when he looks at Laurie, Mm -hmm. because he's, he's missing out on all of that. And I think he is acutely aware of that fact. Now, the rape scene or the attempted rape scene, was actually really uncomfortable to watch, and rightfully so. And a lot of people have pointed out that this was glamorizing or fetishizing it. Sharon, you thought differently? I can see how it could be viewed that way. Um, 
there is a line and ultimately for everybody it's in a different place and I'm, I'm certainly not going to come down on anybody who felt that it was over the top and it was over glamorized but for me it was just the right side of um, maintaining a sense of horrendousness um, without being salacious well yeah like I say, I think for me, it just stays on the right side of that. Um, I don't know if I can really go into too much detail about how it manages to stay on the right side of it, because like I said, for everybody, it's going to be different. Um, but what, I mean, one thing that is different in the film than in the book, um, at the end of that scene, when uh, Hooded Justice comes in and basically pulls Eddie off Sally... Um, once he, Blake has gone, he looks at Sally with what can only be described as contempt and says, get up and for God's sake, cover yourself. Very, very wise, I think, not to include that in the film. I think it works in the film because it's from Sally's perspective. And I think that's important if you're going to have scenes like that. You have to put the audience uh, in the perspective of the victim, not the person perpetrating the horrific act, mm. because then the audience has the right frame of mind. This is a this is horrible, and you're meant to feel horrible. Um, if they had done it from Edward's perspective, there there is that chance that it would seem a bit, you know, you know what I mean. It it would seem like they were kind of glorifying it a bit, mm. but. I think asking they, you to, to empathise with him and, and see his yeah. point of view on this. Yeah, That's yeah, a yeah. very risky decision. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> Once again, we've got to bring this back to Jeffrey Dean Morgan's mature take on the uh, actual role. It would have been very easy to make this guy cartoonishly, ghoulishly, utterly detestable. But there's this... Just the whole... Since the whole film hinges on Sally Jupiter returning to him, there has to be something there that's more than detestable. I think as long as you can see that she saw something more than detestable, you don't necessarily have to see it yourself. And again, I think it's a very fine line and one that Snyder just about managed to straddle. It's quite astonishing considering he does not have a light touch most of the time. Uh, Rorschach. I think Rorschach in the film is slightly over the top um i think his voice while yes in the in the graphic novel they clearly have it like really jaggedy uh dialogue boxes did you really have to go full christian bale um all the time um i I actually I, think I, it's more nuanced than the way Christian Bell does. It, it, it's it, fair play I, to Jackie Earl Haley. Is there's it's more of a sort of a slow, yeah. quiet, gravelly, threatening whisper, whereas Christian Bale just 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 chucks intensity in there yeah, yeah. and doesn't pull Absolutely. back. But, I, but, but yeah, it, it is more, especially once he loses the mask when he's in jail. You could argue that he could have a different persona slightly. 
Well, in the in the book, it's very clear that he has a different persona because when he talks uh, in the prison without his mask, his vo- uh, his voice bubbles normal. So it's suggesting that he's actually putting on a yeah. voice when he puts on the mask, much like Christian Bale does when he becomes Batman. Yeah. But my my problem is, it's more that like I feel like um, a lot of the other actors play it a lot more subtly. Whereas his performance feels the most cartoonish mm. out of everyone, it's it's certainly it's it's not. There are certain scenes where I think it it's fine. I think the scene where he's talking about the comedian's good, where he's leaving a rose by his grave. I think that scene is well done. Um, he's talking about Pagliacci. Yeah, Pagliacci. Um, that is good. I like his final scene as well. Um, but when he's being caught by the police and he's shouting give me back my face I thought that was a bit over the top um, and and the scene where he you know pours oil over not pour yeah he does pour it, he does pour it. in the book he throws it but I'm yeah. assuming for safety reasons <laughs> I know it probably wasn't boiling chip fat that they poured on that poor chap's head yeah. it's a really chilling moment actually it's just his his delivery of that that iconic line. Um, I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. Solitary. Why? For protection. I don't need protection. Protection for them. I think Zack Snyder has very specific fantasies about what prison life will be like. Yeah. <laughs> I think we get a little bit too much of Zack Snyder's very specific fantasies in these film, yes. this film. Couldn't say. Couldn't say. All I know is, if I do get into a fight, I better have an escape route, because I don't want to go to prison for murder. Because that's what it would be. Because my body is a lethal weapon. And me, in prison, face like this. Pretty boy. I'd be in the shower, just lathering up. A couple of guys are coming, wanting a bit of camp arse. I'd see him in the mirror and... What I'm saying is, you best not get into a fight with me. Sure. Or a conversation. They did cut quite a lot of his, even in the uh, ultimate cut, quite a lot of his reminiscing about how he became who he became. All of the uh, thing about the, uh, he worked in a dress shop and there was a brand new fabric, which is what his mask is made out of. And the woman who came in to buy a dress of that rejected the dress. He took the dress home and then used that to form himself a mask to track down this woman's killer a year later. There's also, during that uh the uh, interview sequence um, there's a change of dialogue and I know I've said look I don't mind changes but there's a specific change that I feel like really alters the nature of the character mm-hmm. um, during that speech uh, where he talks about the event with the little girl and yeah. his, the first time he kills he, talks, he basically talks about his loss of faith because up until that point Rorschach was a religious man he, d- he believed in a god um, but then after that, he he concluded that there was no God and that uh, basically people would would not be punished in the afterlife. So that's why he kills people now. Um, uh, and instead, in the film, he mentions that God doesn't care. So he still believes in a God, which completely alters his primary motivation for killing people. 
um, which really bothered me. It, it, He's in and, existential and, crisis at that point in the book. He's staring up at the stars, and all they show him is that he is alone in the universe. Yeah. Whereas Dr. Manhattan looks at those same stars and thinks about how huge the universe is and how much there is to explore. It's a Rorschach test. Yeah. Well, that emphasizes nicely the difference between the two of them. Rorschach gets intimately involved in the everyday terribleness that human beings do to each other, whereas Dr. Manhattan distances himself from it. And yet he, as this you know, disparate collection of atoms that's held together by force of will can feel that he's part of those stars, that he's made from the same material. Rorschach sees himself as completely separate from the rest of the world, but still wants to get his hands dirty in it. But they cut that scene out to make more room for an overly glamorised fight scene in a prison instead. The other thing is that uh, he, in in the book, he doesn't hack the child murderer to death with a cleaver. And significantly at that moment, it's not that he kills him once with the cleaver. He continues to desecrate the corpse. Yeah. Just t- taking it's, it's out this insane anger on it. It is it is unnecessary, but yeah. in the book, he just chains him to the wall and then sets fire to the building, exactly like Mad Max, which happened seven years before the book came out. And I'm assuming they didn't go that way because people would just go, this is just Mad Max. Although, you know, burning alive is a much more horrific death. Just standing outside a burning building, just... The, you know, it, it's it, There's symbolism associated with that that I don't think just repeatedly slamming a cleaver into somebody's head really captures. True. It's also the fact that nobody came. Nobody came to ask what was going on. Nobody came to rescue the guy. Yeah. And it's it, it heightens... Uh, Rorschach's sense of being alone so right now we've got three characters who feel desperately alone comedian Rorschach Manhattan all with different somewhat despairing views on the universe Blake understood humans are savage in nature no matter how much you try to dress it up to disguise it Blake saw society's true face chose to be a parody of it a joke I heard joke once man goes to doctor says he's depressed life seems harsh and cruel says he feels all alone in threatening world doctor says treatment is simple the great clown Pagliacci is in town go see him that should pick you up Man bursts into tears. But doctor, he says, I am Pagliacci. Good joke. Everybody laugh. Roll on snare drum. Curtis. Okay, so that's Rorschach put to bed, I think. Um, let's do Dan Dryberg and Laurie Jaspecic now, shall we? So first off, we've got a piece from Sharon on Laurie. Silk Spectre 2, An Exercise in Ambivalence, by Sharon Shaw. 
When I saw Watchmen the first few times, having managed to successfully avoid absorbing the graphic novel in full despite it being present in the house throughout my early 20s, I did read it but I had difficulty retaining things back then. My response to the character of Laurie Jaspechik was largely scornful. She is one of three named female speaking roles, the other two being her mother and John Osterman's ex-lover Janie. There is also Silhouette, but she and her nurse girlfriend have no dialogue. And all three seem at first glance to be characterised mainly through how they are treated by male characters, in Sally's case by the comedian and by her manager husband, in Janie's by John, and for Laurie, how she's regarded by John and Dan. Laurie's apparent job as male gaze focus point is ramped up substantially by her vigilante clothes, the translucent yellow dress she wears in the comic, and I'm not letting Gibbons and Moore off, but we're focusing on the adaptation here, in practically thigh-skimming with long chiffon sleeves, replaced for the film with a black and flesh-coloured vinyl get-up, long black gloves and thigh-high boots with suspender-style attachments. This even more over-sexualised outfit puts a considerable question mark over the comment in the mini-documentary on costuming the film that the idea was to reflect the reality and humanity of the characters. No woman could perform the ass-kicking fights, stunts and landings Laurie manages in the tenement building and then the prison wearing something that deliberately draws the eye, and the attack, to her vulnerable crotch and nearby femoral artery, to the breast cleavage that points enticingly to her heart and ribs. Oh, and then there's the heels, of course. The goddamn motherfucking heels. If, as a director, you have the wit to acknowledge that it's physically impossible to walk, run, kick, jump and land in spike-heeled boots, to the extent that you have to give your actor flat versions to move around in, just take the bloody things out. If you need her to be taller, may I suggest wedges, platforms, built-up Doc Martens, anything with a more stable base than a flaming stiletto. If you absolutely insist on the visual effect of your female character appearing vulnerable, because make no mistake, that is the point of a high heel. It emphasises the characteristics like slender ankles and a deliberate, uncertain walk that make a woman look fragile, breakable and defenceless, then please ensure you take all the shots with the flat, let's not break the poor girl's ankles boots out. I do concede that this can be used to flip expectations when that character proves to be able to handle herself despite the image she has chosen to present. I say she has chosen, as Rihanna Pratchett pointed out when the most recent Tomb Raider game was released, it is rare to see a woman in an action story who looks like she dressed herself. But make no mistake, when the token female in the group, I've said it before and I'll say it again, 50% would be nice but I'll settle for anything more than one, can't do her job without emphasising her gender and sexuality, whether to confound her opponents, but she's a bird, how is she hitting us so hard? Or the audience, hey look, sexy ladies can also be tough. It reinforces accepted stereotypes and smacks of lazy design. But when I try to coalesce my thoughts on these points, I realise that although all of the above is true of Laurie, irritatingly so, there is more to her as a person than I initially gave credit for. Malin Ackerman's delivery is not the most subtle, and so a lot of Laurie's depth goes missing on casual observation. But some of her dialogue reveals elements that I was, I will admit, distracted from by the ludicrousness of the costume. When on screen with Dr. Manhattan, Laurie is largely used to reflect him. Literally, she is always covered with the blue light from the LEDs in Billy Crudup's costume. Her reactions are supposed to be the human confusion in the face of his increasing detachment, and I suppose it says more about me than Laurie that my empathy doesn't really go in the direction it's intended to. But in the ultimate cut, her brief face-off with the CIA agents who are questioning her about John demonstrates that she does have a firm grasp on who she is, and she's not about to let these guys push her around just because they're older than her and wearing suits. 
In fact, her use of physical abilities to take control of the situation is a less feminine response than might be expected from, say, Dan, who is more of a talker than a fighter when he's out of costume. It is her interactions with her mother which I find the most interesting, if nothing else because they pit Ackerman against the excellent Carla Gugino, whose ability to bring a comic book character into the third dimension was demonstrated even with the moderate amount of screen time she gets as Lucille, Marv's parole officer in Sin City. These scenes show Laurie as a relatively naive young woman, confused by the behaviour of the older generation even as she tries to emulate it. She can't understand her mother, she can't understand John, she even struggles with comprehending Dan and herself and their visceral reactions to the sneaky vigilantism that results in one of the single worst sex scenes in the history of sex scenes. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? appreciate that Snyder was trying to make it ridiculous, but it still jars watching what Bill Hicks referred to as the hairy bobbing man-ass of Patrick Wilson taking centre stage. <laughs> it takes the revelation of who her father is for Laurie to really start to get a grip on the shades of morality that exist in the world, although how this impacts on her ability to get involved in the final showdown is sadly limited to calling Ozymandias an asshole and getting attacked. But she is able to understand the bigger picture in the end. She may be underdeveloped, anemic and underdressed, but at least she displays some degree of personal growth. And that's something. Isn't it? Just one more isn't it slightly louder. Isn't it? Isn't it? Well, no, the point is it's ambivalent. It's not supposed to be a statement. Isn't it? It's a question. Isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? Like the last <laughs> <laughs> Is an tit. <laughs> okay, so any more on Laurie that you guys want to venture? I, I will simply say that I'm I won't I'm not going to rush to Laurie's defense. Uh, I'm a big fan of the book, but I I totally understand where Sharon's coming from with her article. What, what I would add though is that this is not a problem that you could so like during the 80s in comic books. Let's just say female characters were not treated very well, <laughs> and um, that Laurie compared to some other uh, portrayals of female characters feels feels positively progressive she's not um and her, she is over sexualized which is kind of weird considering um alan moore's other female character because i feel like the i forget the name of the female character from v for vendetta i think she's actually a really good character um and it's really that Laurie's not really given much to do. She's just there to be the character that the other male characters kind of reflect off of. And it, and it's really an issue with the time period that the book was written in. And let, actually, let's be honest, it's still a problem with comic books now. Um, I, I'm just, 
Like, it, it shouldn't be a magnificent moment when Young Justice decides to give Black Canary combat boots instead of high heels. That shouldn't <laughs> be a huge moment. That should just be something that happens, but yeah. Uh, Evie is the name of Natalie Portman's character in uh, Beef Vendetta. I I I I get the feeling that he was kind of pressured to make Laurie a sexualized character because ultimately Watchmen was still a major commercial thing to DC. DC. Thing, yeah. She is much less so in the book, though. I think. Um, yeah. It's, so why it's... the hell does Zack Snyder? Well, hang on. <laughs> I got as far as Zack Snyder and then yeah. realised <laughs> because he's Zack Goddamn Snyder. Oh, and have you we seen... have discussed the aforementioned fantasies. Thing. Have you seen Sucker Punch? Actually, you know what? They, what he did with Lena Headey's character in 300, I really liked. Oh, yeah. He made her into a proper character, which she wasn't in the book. Queen Gorgo. But Watch it is Sucker kind Punch, of like... I'm not gonna. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of like he has this sort of... There's, there's a band of of the the depth of the v-neck that female characters should be wearing and the height that the split in their skirt should go up to and if it's less than that he'll bring it down and if it's more than that he'll bring it up so that they all kind of fit in this nice little band in the middle i believe uh, the term is half an inch below vag base <laughs> but the having having reviewed the uh, the motion comic this afternoon um and and sort of seen how the illustrations in the the book are done. I mean, obviously, I mentioned in the essay about how the um, the film uh, vigilante costume differs from the the book costume. Um, but the way that um, that Laurie behaves, you you don't see as much um, graphic violence from her. I mean, she's you know she can hold her own, and in the fight she gets involved. And I'm you know I'm not going to pretend that 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 aggression is is not there in the book. It certainly is. But she she doesn't stab a guy in the neck. No, both no. she and Dan seem to do a lot less drooling, glorified murder than they do in the film, and they actually kind of just come across, particularly towards the end, and and sort of that the scene. Oh my god, the sex scene, which I am now laying totally at, at Zack Snyder's feet. He, he can't blame any yeah. of that on, on Alan Moore. Um, but, but again, that was on purpose. Yes. He did intend that to be about their fetishistic I, I, interest in it. Yes. But, but, I, I, the but they come off in the, in the book like just like a, a pair of, you know, uh, gentle cosplayers. That's that's the thing, though. This is the homicidal maniacs. In the books, yeah. it's, they're more like just people who have kinks, and those kinks find a certain expression in you know, trying to do good for people, but basically it that makes them feel more human, not less. The way it's portrayed in the film, it makes them feel distinctly action dolly. I I, I always think of Dan, and I know we're kind of talking about Laurie here. No, but no, we can do yeah, those two characters. Are, as well, yeah, uh, those characters are so connected. Um, uh, Dan, I always see as an addict. He's addicted to the costume, to crime fighting. Mm. It makes you feel like a god for those few moments, and then the moment you take the moment he takes off that costume, the moment he becomes regular old Dan, 
he's he crashes he's not he's not that confident anymore he i mean dan has a major inferiority complex like the guy needs to have more confidence in himself um in the the reason he couldn't get um perform when he's back at his own home is that that they're watching adrian vide on tv doing incredible gymnastics and they're commenting on his incredible prowess and he's like dang it can't can't perform why be jealous of Adrian? In many ways, Laurie is kind of an enabler for Dan's addiction, almost. And, and you, while it's framed both in the book and the film, it's framed as a positive thing for Dan, there's an alternate version of that where it's just this guy who's got himself clean... Um, you know, going straight back into his, you know, horrible addiction again. So, yeah, it... it I, I do think Dan and Laurie suffer the most in the adaptation to the mm, film. They've been jazzed up a lot more. I find them yeah. deathly dull in the book. They're dull in the book, but they're... Hang on. They're dull in an entirely different <laughs> way. In the yeah, they're, they're dull either way. I'm not sure if either of them reaches deathly, but they're dull and worrying in the film. Like, these guys are off their rockers. I don't know. They're, they're a lot less relatable in the um, film because... Because of what they do. You yeah. can't sweep that stuff under the rug and go, oh, I was just in the moment. It's it's terrible stuff that they should be arrested for by every law in the land. I think the worst thing Laurie does in the book is just break somebody's nose. Like, that's... Um, she did think... that. There is a scene, um, there's a frame when they're in the fight in the alley. She actually does grab hold of somebody's arm and put her hand through it. Oh, okay. Right. But, that's, but that is about as bad as it gets. Yeah. And and to be fair, Batman's not afraid of breaking bones. He just stops short of killing people. Batman has an ethos. Yeah. These guys just seem to be in it for the, the thrill. It's yeah, not yeah. about emotional release for Batman. That's why he has oh, abs- the lines. Yeah, yeah. The, the, these two are not doing it for some kind of moral cause. They're doing it because they get a thrill out of it. Yeah. All the night through, through the noise and to-do, You wonder who is that person that lives up there And you see me stepping out in the morning Looking nice with a ribbon in my hair (laughs) And the ship The blood Freighter runs a flag up its masthead and a cheer rings the air. Now then, what about its place in the movie? It still serves as a shorthand analogue to the greater narrative, but I found the transitions to be quite jarring at times. The first cut to the Black Freighter occurs completely out of nowhere. The screen simply focuses on darkness until it might as well be a fade to black, and then wham, the cartoon starts. If I had no personal knowledge of what was going on, I would have been awfully confused at that point. The transition isn't as bad for most of the other segments, thanks to the inclusion of several scenes involving the interaction between the two Bernards at the newsstand. At least with that kind of lead-in for the animation, there is some kind of thread to follow as to where the scenes are coming from, and the editor did a good job matching up the live-action scenes that bookend the animation segments with the action that occurs during those brief asides. 
A very subtle difference between the director's cut and the ultimate cut is that the inclusion of the black freighter makes the tone of the movie more consistent. Many of the scenes that were added back into the movie to make the director's cut involved increasingly uncomfortable levels of violence. The theatrical cut isn't exactly a frolic through a valley of sunshines and rainbows, but the near-fetishistic focus on gore that the director's cut adds made the tone vary too wildly. The addition of the black freighter, while still dark and laden with grotesque imagery, made a good middle ground between the character drama and the ultraviolence. Hollis Mason and Sally Jupiter. The way Hollis is portrayed, specifically in the film, I actually found myself feeling quite fond of him. He's, he's got a lot of dignity. The actor Stephen McHattie gives an avuncular performance uh, with tinged with sadness. Seems like he kind of feels that it was a missed opportunity between him and Sally. And that he's kind of spent his life not really fulfilling his potential. I am glad that in the theatrical cut we are spared the really rather unpleasant side of him being beaten to death with his own award by some not-tops. Sally Jupiter, played by Carla Gugino. She's a lot more glamorous in the film. I I don't know whether Snyder was slightly afraid of of showing what is effectively an ageing old lady requiring pills and constantly wearing a sort of bizarre frilly nightgown Mm. I do like the fact that they've gone back to the future on on this one regarding the facial makeup it would be uh, for example Hollis Mason um, is played by a completely different actor for his his younger version because she's part of a very important drama scene earlier they got Carla Gugino to play the same character so that you would have that connection Mm. she feels like she wasted her life as well there were there were two men who I don't think she'd have been better off with the comedian, but she certainly would have been better off with Night Owl 2 than she was with her... Uh, it was actually her manager who she ended up marrying, which kind of reminds me of the way you know, porn stars tend to... Uh, when they get hitched, the guys originally think it's great, and they're nailing a porn star, and then within a year, it's, you whore! So yeah, he's the one who left because of the uh, Edward Blake situation. So there's this tremendous sense of waste, never made more clear than uh, when she talks about how the, uh, the the future is getting darker and the past gets brighter every day. I think that there is sort of a, a subtle implication that she reached a point in her life where it basically became who else would have her. Yeah. That she's, for all that she is portrayed yeah. as glamorous and, and um, you know, a very confident young woman and... and you know, in in her early life, being able to go out and do this crime fighting that up till then had been the boy's job, um, she does seem to be very down on herself, and she she almost seems to reach for any validation that she can get. Yeah, hence the mucky yeah. comic book. Yeah, and and the idea that Blake's attention on her certainly a little bit later in her life was something that she saw as a, a bright spark in a, a an otherwise increasingly dark world. Again, this is what the entire story revo- rests upon. Were it not for this one moment, uh, Manhattan wouldn't have decided to help out humanity. She's a complicated woman. That's enough to convince Manhattan. I think he just assumes everybody is a straightforward, simple line of code. John takes everyone at surface value. It's uh, For me, it's not so much that he takes everyone at surface value. It's that he just doesn't see people at all. Yeah. But uh, it's... 
because he can see things that are infinite, you know, infinitely small and infinitely big, just, you know, basic human problems seem so petty to him. Yeah. Like stuff that seems so important to us seems so insignificant to uh, John. Um, and, and that's why he's so detached and so, like to him, death means, like he, death means nothing to him. So why would he be affected by a woman being shot by the comedian? Like, you know, you know, stuff like that. He, he recognizes that other people, when they die, they will not come back. But I don't think he fully comprehends it in the way other people do. They sentenced me to 20 years of boredom For trying to change the system from within I'm coming now, I'm coming to reward them First, we take Manhattan Then we take Berlin I'm guided by a signal in the heavens I'm guided by this birthmark on my skin I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons First we take Manhattan Then we take Berlin I think what makes John an interesting character is is that he is so difficult to relate to but it's a two-way street we can't relate to him but he can't relate to us either and I find that really fascinating that he is truly alien um, in a way that few characters are in comic books. Yeah, it's like he's a different species. Yeah. I don't think we ever... There is no shot that actually shows you how John sees things, is there? Yeah, no, there isn't. Not even in the comic. But I, I always kind of imagine it as being how, you know, at the end of the Matrix, when Neo starts to see everything in code. Binary, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, that's how I imagine John seeing the world, basically looking at a human being, a tree, and a fire hydrant, and them all just being collections of atoms in various different shapes. So it's very difficult for him to sort of understand that this collection of atoms has a different experience to this one, and that has a different experience to that one. It's... it's- it's not just that death doesn't matter to him, life doesn't matter to him. Well, yeah, that's, that's the thing. Those two things exist in constant interaction with each other. If you can't understand or appreciate one of them, you can't understand and appreciate the other. Well, he's not really alive. He, I think he's he's not really a living thing at this point, is he? He's, he's energy and atoms made sentient. Yeah. Um, He's a god, uh, you know, essentially. Um, and it's so... In, I think I just find it fascinating kind of exploring what that kind of power does to you over time. And and all he cares about is just mechanical things. Like, he, that clock, he respects the clock because it's just this functional thing that does a job and, and it does it well. He doesn't care about all the... 
emotional stuff that as human beings we find so compelling and interesting he just does not find that interesting at all you know just like with superman the most interesting stories of superman are when you're getting to see characters react to him as this powerful being and i think the most interesting scenes in watchmen uh is just seeing how the, uh, these other characters are affected by this godlike being. Um, I'm sorry, but her name has just left my head. His wa- his first wife... Janie Slater. Jane. Janie Slater. Just hit her reaction, and totally understandable, her reaction is completely justified to his, you know, not understanding her reaction to him going off with this other woman like during that argument they're having and she's throwing stuff at him he's just completely blank faced he just doesn't care at all I do understand one of the criticisms of that character is that he is so impenetrable emotionally that he's almost impossible to relate to I don't think that's necessary because he's just such a a fascinating case study sorry someone else talk now I was just trying to think how to phrase I agree with you because I was up until you said just say fascinating. this <laughs> <laughs> yes this pointing in that direction well no because I, until you said fascinating case study what I was going to say was I, I'd say completely the opposite I find John completely and utterly absorbing and fascinating and yeah, yeah. I, I, the moments when he's he's on his own are actually the ones that I find the most interesting because yeah. seeing how he behaves when he doesn't have to try and uh, relate to these insignificant beings that fill up his time for me is, is the most revealing about what he's becoming and what he's, what he was and what he will be. I tell her I still want her and that I always will. As I lie to her, it is September 4th, 1970. I am in a room full of people wearing disguises. A very young girl looks at me and smiles. She's beautiful. After each long kiss, she plants a smaller, gentler one upon my lips, like a signature. Janie accuses me of chasing jail bait. She bursts into angry tears, asking if it's because she's getting older. It's true. She's aging more noticeably every day. While I am standing still, I prefer the stillness here. I am tired of Earth, these people. I'm tired of being caught in the tangle of their lives. are to build a heaven, yet their heaven is populated with horrors. Perhaps the world is not made. Perhaps nothing is made. A clock 
without a craftsman. It's too late. Always has been. Always will be. Too late. And the shoes. However, the most important difference for me between the director's cut and the ultimate cut had nothing to do with the animated feature and everything to do with the scenes with Bernie and Bernie that were added to frame the animation. It is true that the director's cut added a scene or two with a disguised Rorschach harassing old Bernie for a copy of The New Frontiersman. The ultimate cut included four more minutes of their interaction, and it is in those four minutes that the greatest change is felt. The theatrical release only included the Bernies in the last scene, where New York was exploding thanks to Adrian's squid reactor, serving as a quick homage to anyone who's familiar with the graphic novel. The director's cut gives you their names and a little interaction with the surrounding people on the street, but little else. The ultimate cut includes more interaction between old Bernie and the surrounding people, a scene where the knot-tops harass young Bernie, which incidentally adds more cohesion to the inclusion of the scene leading to the death of Night Owl 1, where the knot-tops go to harass young Bernie a second time, and much more interaction between the two Bernies, adding just enough characterisation to make their deaths more meaningful. Additionally, the extended interaction with the Knot Tops reinforces how dangerous the gangs of the city have become after the Keen Act passed, which ties back to a scene added back to the beginning, explaining that the Minutemen started with fighting gang violence. All in all, I think these scenes added just a touch more cohesiveness to the overarching story. Final word, though, is that it's just too bloody long. I watched the ultimate cut with my housemates, all of whom are big fans of the graphic novel, and over half of them had grown bored of the movie well before the final scenes. I enjoyed The Black Freighter separately, and recall that I wished it was included in the theatrical release when I first saw the movie, but in the end I could only suggest that major fans of the comic watch the ultimate cut. The theatrical cut worked well for someone totally unversed in the Watchmen story, and I for one am glad that big fans such as myself have a definitive version we can go back to. Which brings us to Ozymandias. Possibly one of the most different characters uh, in, in the film to how he is in the book. He is a lot more neutral, a lot more genial almost. And to some degree, at the end, in two minds about what he's done. He actually asks John, did I do the right thing? Which was taken out and instead... He's a lot more of a smirking Bond villain. And when he says, was it, I'm not a villain in a comic book. 
Yeah, yeah. You're like, well, could have fooled me. You bloody look like one. <laughs> it's the actor's performance for me. Yeah. It's it, he's just at every in every scene. He's this pompous, sniveling. Oh, I'm so much better than everyone else. Shifty and, eyes. Yeah. Slight the Nazi scene, accent. The the scene that really um, kind of sums it up for me is the scene where he poisons all his uh you know flunkies in the book it's really understated like he's he's clearly slipped them poison but when he notices notice they're dead he doesn't say anything just has this really depressed look on his face he just walks out of um the area that uh they're all lying and then just destroys that area uh, in an attempt to just forget that ever happened he feels it, it feels like he's genuinely upset with what he's had to do to further his plans. In the film, it feels like he's almost reveling in the fact that he just killed all his friends. It's like, mm, okay, that's not, that's not Vite. Vite's not a villain. He's not an antagonist. He recognizes that killing people is wrong, but he feels like it's a necessary evil. Um, and and that conversation with him and John is so necessary and I can't believe they cut it out because you need that self-doubt to make what he did relatable I think um, you need that like sense that he knows that this is morally ambiguous he knows that this is morally ambiguous hello John I was hoping we'd have the chance to talk John I know people think me callous, but I've made myself feel every death. By day, I imagine endless faces. By night, well, I dream about swimming towards a hideous... No, never mind, it isn't significant. What's significant is that I know. I know I've struggled across the backs of murdered innocents to save humanity, but someone had to take the weight of that awful necessary crime. I'd hoped you'd understand. Unlike Rorschach, you needn't consider Rorschach. But yes, I understand, without condoning or condemning. Human affairs cannot be my concern. I'm leaving this galaxy for one less complicated. But you'd regained interest in human life. Yes, I have. I think perhaps I'll create some. Goodbye, Adrian. John, wait. I did the right thing, didn't I? It all worked out in the end. In the end? Nothing ends, Adrian. Nothing ever ends. John? Wait! What do you mean by... It still resonates that he is not doing this to be sneering and evil and to punish the human race, and that he does have... A, yes. a greater uh, idea for the species, but the way it's 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 all in the delivery, as you said. Yeah. We get that he's smart. He doesn't have to tell us every few moments, you know, whether whether in words or a look or a sort of, you know, I can catch a bullet in my special Kevlar glove. I think at that point, I just thought, wouldn't it just be easier to examine the direction Laurie is holding the gun and dodge? out of it, out of the yeah. way of it so that the bullet goes past him rather than actually catching the damn thing in, in the book doesn't it mangle his hand 
Yeah, his hand is basically ruined. Yeah. Whereas in the film, it's like, I'll just pull the bullet out of my hand and I'm totally fine. Yeah. Um, the, I, it seems like work. Zach was like, right, we're going to need a villain. Let's villain this guy up. And he keeps hitting the plus button. Villain, 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 villain. Oh, no, he's not a villain. He totally is a villain. Yeah. Of course, my moral safeguards gave me pause as a necessary sacrifice. A few key regions around the globe. New York, Los Angeles, Moscow, Hong Kong. Disintegrated in an instant. Fifteen million people killed by Dr. Manhattan himself. The world's punishment for flirting with World War III. If John wouldn't do that. In fact, no one outside this room ever has to know. The energy breakthrough I was working on just came to fruition. All these years, John was helping me replicate his power, unaware of how I planned to use it. You see, the comedian was right. Humanity's savage nature will inevitably lead to global annihilation. So in order to save this planet, I had to trick it with the greatest practical joke in human history. Killing millions. To save Billions. Billions? A trillion is more than a billion, numbnuts. A necessary crime. You know, we can't let you do that. Do that, Rorschach? I'm not a comic book villain. Do you seriously think I'd explain my masterstroke to you if there were even the slightest possibility you could affect the outcome? So actually, we can talk about how does the new ending affect the overall story. <laughs> Uh, just for people who aren't entirely sure what the new ending is, Avite explains that he uh, realized fighting crime could never rid the world of evil. Then at the ill-fated Crime Busters meeting, he realizes that the comedian was right when he said it was pointless to form a crime-fighting team when nuclear war was inevitable. This is the comic, by the way. When the Cold War escalating and the proliferation of more arms, he realized the military deadlock would eventually lead to one final conflict. It was then he began to formulate his plan to solve this dilemma, a grand hoax, to get the world to believe there was the threat, threat of, of alien invasion. invasion. This would stop all governments from fighting each other and unite them against one common greater enemy. First, he would need Dr. Manhattan out of the way. He would give all of Osterman's closest associates cancer, forcing John to go into exile. With the new technology Osterman's superhuman intelligence had brought about, Veidt began to research advancements in the field of genetics and teleportation on his private island. When the comedian accidentally spotted Veidt's uncharted island by air, he went to investigate and found the world's missing scientists working on a, a monstrous new life form. This seems very Bioshock again. But Blake was afraid to expose the plot. He only told Moloch, who he knew, who he knew wouldn't understand, and since Veidt had Moloch's apartment bugged, just because, he found out that Blake knew and killed him before he could tell anyone else. Then, in order to throw Rorschach's suspicion off himself, Veidt orchestrated his own assassination attempt, pushing a cyanide capsule into the attacker's mouth after subduing him to prevent him from talking as well. In order to save humanity from self-destruction, Veidt cloned... Here's where it differs. Cloned the brain of a powerful psychic, then had geneticists make it much bigger and more powerful. Programmed into the brain were horrifying images of aliens, so that the mental transmissions given off at its death would affect anyone around it who managed to survive the initial psychic blast. He teleports this creature into the center of New York City. Since teleporting technology was limited, anything living that was transported would die of shock 
and explode. And it exploded. The ensuing psychic shockwave would kill half the city's populace. This event would ideally or inevitably, you decide, force all humans to end their petty wars and unite against a new, more terrifying alien enemy. In the film, the plot is nearly identical. Only aside from a giant exploding psychic squid monster, Ozymandias triggers a nuclear explosion with the exact same radiation signature of Dr. Manhattan. Therefore, the human race will be united in a fear of an already established, awe-inspiring force, rather than some delusion about pretend aliens. This is a natural reaction to the Superman taking it upon himself to be the higher authority. It is thus consistent with the story that has developed over the course of the narrative, and more in keeping with the themes of the book than Moore's Squid, which is ridiculous, nonsensical, impromptu, random, disappointing, dissatisfying, and as a result, rather cheap. The thing with me is that I really love the idea and themes that Moore is trying to inject into the ending. Like, the idea that humanity needs to unite against a common foe that's so powerful that none of us as individual nations could possibly uh, defeat it. Um, That's what would cause world peace, just giving us a common enemy. But the squid, as you said, is just... It's too much... It's just so dumbfounding the first time you see it that, that that message doesn't quite get across at first. I've read it multiple times and the squid doesn't bother me as much anymore, but, you know, the first time when I saw that thing, it, it looks silly. By making it Dr. Manhattan, you still ha- it's still the exact same ending, really. They haven't changed the ending, really. They've just changed the mechanism of it. Um, Dr. Manhattan is a being so powerful that no one nation could defeat him. Um, and it totally makes sense. So I really struggle... I am a hardcore fan of that novel. I really can't relate to other fans of the novel who really uh, dislike this change. You're my you do something to me. You send chills right through me. When I look at you, Cause you're my thrill You're my thrill How my pulse increases I just go to pieces When I look at you Cause you're my thrill the final emotions the wrong word i suppose but the the final interpretation that i took away from it was the idea of of john basically going away and becoming god and just becoming a part of the universe that would observe but not participate in this little squealing corner of life he said he was going to start creating life what then does he do i don't think he'd create the kind of complex life that that 
humans just great, to become. Great if he did, but it's he, going to evolve, and he's it, still going well, to be exactly. around. He, and then he what's might he going to potentially do? create some single-celled organisms, nice and controlled, nice and, and and explainable that he could understand. And then as soon as it got up to a point where they were starting to question smite the them. presence of these <laughs> toes and things, no, I don't think he'd smite them. I think he'd just leave. He'd just go, okay, you're on your own now. And Bye. you have just solved theology. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. That's the riddle of theology right there. Walking with Giants A community member sent me a short piece about how the world in Watchmen is host to a whole new breed of superhero. They inferred that Rorschach, Comedian, Silk Spectre 2, Night Owl 2 and Ozymandias were possessing of beyond human strength and speed, easily destroying the hoods in their path, that Dr. Manhattan was not the only god. I'm actually not surprised at this misconception. The way Zack Snyder shoots proceedings, and even the way the book paints these larger-than-life characters, you could be forgiven for believing that they are beyond our abilities with some science or supernatural-based galvanization of the human body and mind. But they're not. The wearers of the masks in Watchmen, save for Manhattan himself, are all absolutely human. Athletic, yes, but not comic book special. What we're seeing is how they see themselves especially in Snyder's crass, sexualized slow-mo. This is a power trip for them. They marvel at their capacity to mete out lightning justice upon creatures they do not even see as human beings. This is a juvenile mentality. This all seems to stem from Snyder's own misinterpretation of the characters. In the comics, they are considerably less brutal. And yes, considerably less sexy. The cringe-worthy sex scene is supposed to be awful. It is shot deliberately so as to mirror the upcoming prison fight. These characters adore who they are when in costume, and they find one another more vibrant as a result. If we could see it in a realistic light, Laurie would totter along the concrete floor in her spiked stiletto heels and clumsily put one through the eye of a fallen prisoner. If you watch carefully, you can even see the reality through the cracks. Since fighting in those heels would be impossible, actress Malin Ackerman actually fights in flats. You can interpret this as Laurie doing the same, but the way she sees herself, she thinks she's in heels. We're inside their heads for the duration, and so while what we see is ugly, we are spared the awkward reality. In point of fact, this isn't supposed to be real life. They wouldn't survive if it was. Look no further than the 2010 film Kick-Ass for your realistic example. No amount of sex appeal is going to stop Silk Spectre 2 being shivved by grim, hardened killers who think her costume looks stupid. Neither is it supposed to be the stylized Fleischer Superman cartoons where what children want to be true is true. Instead, the Watchmen book straddles the line between real and idealized fantasy. Snyder's screen adaptation simply heightens both aspects. 
There is one enormous fallacy of the Watchmen plot that goes right back to the book. Superheroes, or at least masked vigilantes, needed to appear in response to a great example. In Watchmen, the Minutemen form in 1940, just a bunch of hapless dreamers on a power kick with quaint circus costumes and sensibilities. They're childlike in their outlook, and when Mothman is dragged away kicking and screaming to the sanitarium, still wearing his enormous, flightless wings that would get him killed in seconds in an actual street fight, you can see he's still living the fantasy, confused as to why he, as a protector, is being treated this way by a serious and incredulous world. In the book, and somewhat glossed over by the movie, the Minutemen's established example is hooded justice. Just a regular guy whose masked crime-fighting actions are enough to inspire similar behaviour in others. The Minutemen aren't super. They have no supervillains, save for Moloch, who is, aside from his unusual ears, as mystical and formidable as the Blue Rajah. This is Moore's dig at the golden age of comics, which ran from 1938 to 1950, dealing mostly with characters you've never heard of because they simply couldn't stand the test of time. It's hard for me to tell if Moore is being scathing or affectionate, or both, here. But it's the one aspect that's always made me question the established alternate history. The hero's true grand example occurs in 1959, some two decades after the formation of the Minutemen, when John Osterman becomes Dr. Manhattan, the only real Superman and the effective rallying point. This, and only an event with the impact of this, would be enough of a miraculous moment to diverge our history and have capes become a major aspect of the world's development. This contradiction bothers me greatly. Manhattan, however, is one of the triumphs of the story. His musing on time and being able to observe his own life from many points made for the kind of mind-expanding reading that the medium required. It would appear that in piecing himself back together at an atomic level, one crucial part escaped into the ether, John's soul. He is a child of science, able to be anywhere, know anything, but feeling eludes him. In effect, his very personality is simply an echo of John the core of whom evaporated in the chamber. He is the essence of a man given form by the illusion of memory. This is what separates him from Kal-El. While Superman could at any point abandon the human race and depart, he has a conscience. He has adopted us as his people, and even hardened and embittered, even with his mind and body broken, he would never truly give up on us. Or at least it's rare that people write that story. John has no such attachment. He does not possess the meat and fluids required to feel pain and compassion, jealousy or love, nor the substance of the soul required to interpret those feelings. He is robotic Superman, an empty blue shell. Our notions of morality are outdated lines of code. He serves instead to highlight our struggling, frightened species ruled by war we cannot yet evolve beyond. War is the antithesis of Manhattan's outlook. He would rather a decision was made and executed than see two forces collide nonsensically, only to inevitably weaken any victor. Even Ozymandias, by comparison, is just a really smart guy. He has a brilliant mind and acts believably out of compassion for the many at the expense of the few. His behaviour is almost aping John's rationality taken to the extreme, but ultimately Adrian has a soul, and his actions are informed upon by a lifetime of experience, next to John's perpetual existence of cold, clinical, scientific logic. As John builds his fortress of solitude on Mars, he muses on watchmaking, evoking an example of creationist doctrine. If you find a watch, it must, by logical deduction, have had a watchmaker. 
being too intricate and specialised to have happened by mere chance. Manhattan does not believe in God anymore, if he ever did, and being so intimate with the components of all matter, he concludes that life is merely an accident, an anomaly in a universe devoid of sentience, an inevitable conclusion for a creature devoid of a soul. In the end, it is a cerebral conundrum that motivates him, the human race being viewed by him as a miracle of thermodynamics. John was, as a young man, introduced to watchmaking by his father, becoming fascinated by the intricate mechanics at such small scale. His father later pushed him into a career in physics, which is the same principle, this time on a microscopic scale. So John was the subject of coercion as a man, and as Manhattan, he is coerced into aiding America in Vietnam. His decision to leave us and do his own thing is the first true choice he makes. Again, parallels here are with Superman, compelled to help the human race by his demanding father, then allying himself with America. Invariably in the comics, Kal-El is somewhat in love with the American dream. This is flipped in Mark Miller's Red Sun, where his ship landed on Soviet soil, resulting in him being raised to love Mother Russia. Ultimately, though, Superman will always have some kind of ethos, being at his core of similar substance to us. This is not something Manhattan is bound by, so he has no ethos. He believes he knows everything, and thus does not require a cultural filter. Next to Manhattan and Ozymandias, however, Rorschach is simply a determined psychopath with illusions of being a detective and a strict moral code of good and evil, black and white. He himself never falls under scrutiny, being in his own eyes wholly righteous, despite carrying out despicable acts upon the guilty. Like the Joker, he looks at the world and sees only what he wants to see, filtering out the beautiful or worthwhile parts and seeing only rot that he charges himself to remove. The street is his Rorschach test, and the results are always the same. It is this binary view that will not allow him to accept the shades of grey aftermath of Ozymandias' plan. He simply cannot cope with what he can only process as an entirely evil act going unpunished. Dan and Laurie don't even have that oversimplified code. I struggle to locate what Night Owl 2 even stands for. He's a decent guy, and that appears to be about it. He wants to help people. Laurie seems to be just in it for the glamour and the fetishistic costume. Then again, they both gleefully mutilate a gang of street hoods, snapping bones like dry twigs with their martial arts prowess. Once again, not even seeing their attackers as human. Establishing from the word go a line between they, the masked heroes, and criminals, the other. This even extends in the film to murder. Laurie sinks a stolen blade into the neck of her attacker when things get frantic. This is a line Batman, Superman and the like will not cross, because once it's been forgotten, there is no going back for those who take the law into their own hands. After this horrendous act, Laurie isn't even shaking. She's done this before. One more dead thug doesn't matter. She is as insane as Rorschach, only more socially palatable. And hotter. Once again, this alley fight is considerably less bloody and fatal in the book. Thanks again, Zack. A major contributing factor to this is that Dan and Laurie are following in the footsteps of two previous heroes. They have taken on the mantle and the name of two dreamers. A figurative father figure in the case of Dan and a literal mother figure in the case of Laurie. Two dreamers who were just trying to do the right thing and got their jollies punching hoods. Again, this isn't even an inherited ethos, and they have no sense of self. 
Dan is impotent because when out of the costume he feels insignificant. Laurie is whiny and anxiety-ridden because she chose the hardest man in the world to have a romantic relationship with. This is a far cry from true heroes with something to fight for. They are, as John says, ants. So no, this is not a world of gods and superheroes. It is a world of deluded, neurotic exhibitionists, murderous sociopaths, and one supreme aloof being with the power of the atom. They preside over a civilization of paranoid, self-absorbed slaves to the system. It is a dark mirror held up against our own world, reflecting only ugly, selfish despair. The absolute pinnacle of existence being just getting by, whether being guarded by maniacs in capes or watched over by the inhuman eyes of Dr. Manhattan. Or perhaps that is all I see. brief roundup just before we go. Some things we didn't mention include the masterful application of music from New York's minimalist composer Philip Glass for the Dr. Manhattan sequence. Billy Crudup in particular did a stunning job acting as John Osterman and Dr. Manhattan. Pruitt Ego and Prophecies combine a perfect blend of clockwork precision and portentous theological overtones to encapsulate the God Machine in one single intensely memorable sequence. Leonard Cohen's rendition of Hallelujah is ruined for me forever now, whether intentionally or not. Tyler Bates, despite being relatively unknown and rarely receiving recognition, puts out a thumping, moody score that at once captures, parodies and evolves the cinematic music of the 1980s. There are musical cues from Apocalypse Now and Raging Bull, the former being Ride of the Valkyries by Wagner, which takes place when Manhattan is destroying the Viet Cong. The latter is crassly superimposed over the scene where Hollis Mason is beaten to death in slow-mo, a scene that needed a more mature and somber tone and only found in the extended cuts. On the subject of these longer versions, I would like to reiterate that the theatrical is by far and away the best. At 2 hours 35, it is just about enough for one ask to take. The director's cut adds 24 mostly worthless minutes back in, which are not worth the extra running time. Aside from not really adding anything or deepening the story, there are multiple grisly shots we would otherwise be spared, the worst coming at the time of the staged assassination. A woman in the comic takes a bullet through the chest and falls as Adrian dives out of the way. But that wasn't good enough for Zack. He has the bullet carved through her delicate cough with slow motion blood spatter, followed by her screaming in pain and terror, holding her hand up for protection, only to have two fingers blown off, again in trickling orgasmic slow-mo. No amount of extra conversations can wash away the bitter taste in my mouth that this leaves. It was a heinous decision, and taking it out for the cinema was a good call, whoever made that. 
The ultimate cut splices in the Black Freighter, which is a further treacle-slow 29 minutes of poisonous pointlessness. It's not even good symbolism in the comic, and its continued interruption of the story, especially once you know the ending, is jarring and needlessly grim. If you're listening to this in America and you only own the director's cut, then I got sour news for you. It was never released on Blu-ray in America. You guys only got the director's cut and the ultimate edition, which is ridiculously expensive right now. You can't find in your country the best version of the film, the one you saw at the cinemas. Now, if that doesn't make your blood fucking curdle, you are being denied the only version of it with some semblance of self-restraint. The only version which cares about your ass. Fortunately, help is at hand in the form of your friends in Great Britain. The much-overlooked theatrical edition two-disc set is multi-region. The modern-day set Paul Greengrass version that never was got me thinking. Post-Dark Knight, I see very little reason that this needed to be an R-rated film. A mature and sparing handling of the violence and sex with more turns from the camera to spare the viscera actually would have made it more like the book, not less. Easing back just a little on the cartoonish aspects and pitching it at the Nolan-loving crowd would have been a shrewd move, making them more box office in the end. No, it wouldn't be suitable for children, but neither is PG-13 rated The Dark Knight Rises. As for the change of the end, I think what fans probably liked less in retrospect was Adrian's lack of uncertainty. It wasn't the switcheroo from Squid to Manhattan, though people do zero in on that. It was the framing of Vite as considerably more of a sneering villain. Having said that, he gloats and monologues like crazy in the book too, matching the arrogance, but minus the menace. There are a few visual motifs that turn up time and again in the book which seem to be absent, or maybe weren't spotted or thought of as important. The recurrence of a splash of red on yellow, Rorschach's black splodges on white walls, smashed glass containers and architecture, Greek-style statues of towering men, graffiti of two lovers embracing, and considerably more characterization for the doomed citizens of New York human elements and detail that fell by the wayside in favour of a few additional punch-ups. On the whole, though, I stand by my stance that this was the best that both comic and movie fans could really have hoped for. Look to John Peters and his giant spider for the kind of lunatic liberties that executives have the power and inclination to play with established beloved licenses. It's at least clear that Snyder loves the book, and his characters look right and say the right words against the right backgrounds with awesome music. It's just the tone and the editing that betrays the man's music video sensibilities. It's just the occasionally garish tone and the editing that betray the man's music video sensibilities. However, the much-celebrated book does end with creaky old Sally Jupiter bestowing that mucky comic depicting her younger self enjoying an enormous dick upon Dan Dryberg. This has to be the all-time creepiest gift from a potential mother-in-law I have ever seen!
Hang on. Final thought. Comedian was lonely. Manhattan was lonely. Night Owls 1 and 2 were lonely. Silk Spectres 1 and 2 were lonely. Rorschach was lonely. Ozymandias was lonely. Moloch was lonely. The Bernards were both lonely. Even Nixon was lonely. This whole book is about the odd, compulsive little connections formed with strangers. The capes are incidental. Comedian even says that Moloch is the closest thing he has to a friend. On a grand scale, Adrian is trying to get the world to kiss and make up and just be friends. The happy ending is based on boring old Dan and Laurie being able to actually nurture that connection and go off and have a good life together. Maybe the story is sweeter and more hopeful in nature than I, and indeed Zack Snyder, imagined. Hello darkness, my old friend I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence In restless dreams I walked alone Narrow streets of cobblestone Neath the halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and damp When my eyes were stabbed By the flash of a neon light Split the night And touch the sound of silence And in the naked light I saw Ten thousand people, maybe more People talking without speaking People hearing without listening People writing songs That voices never share No one did Disturb the sound of silence Who said I, you do not know Silence like a cancer grows Hear my words that I might teach you Take my arms that I might reach you But my words like silent raindrops fell Echo me Out and pray to the neon god they made, and the sign flashed out its warning in the words that it was forming, and the sign said the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls, tenement halls, Silence.